So last September, my, my daughter turned nine. And uh, my wife and I married a few years ago, and uh, it, it was before our newborn together, it was her parents' first shot at being grandparents. And it was this really cool and redemptive experience for them. And uh, so they called us up, and they, they said, hey, we'd like to come down for Isabella's birthday. We'd like to take you guys to Knott's Berry Farm. And immediately I was like, nope. See, we just found out that Janelle was pregnant, so it was kind of, kind of pointless for her, but we hadn't told anybody yet, so we're thinking, how do we navigate that? She can't ride on any rides, and she likes roller coasters, and I hate them, which is my personal reason for not wanting to go. I was hiking up Mount Rubidoux with a friend a couple weeks ago, and, and we got to the spot, and he said, wouldn't this make a great place for hang gliding? And I was like, what are you, stupid? I like to have my two feet on the ground. I don't want to be upside down. I don't need to jump out of a plane at 40,000 feet and watch the ground screaming towards my face. I am completely okay with that. But the more I thought about it, I thought it would be a great experience for the kids. I mean, it's called Knott's Berry Farm. It's like the wuss bag of amusement parks, right? It's good, with a name like that, Knott's Berry Farm. Who, that can't be scary. So we go, we pack up the kids, and we get there, and, and immediately my daughter sees a roller coaster. And she's like, can we go on that one? And I'm like looking at it. I'm like, that's not too tall. There's no loops on it. Yeah, that's, that looks pretty safe. So we get in, and, and it was about three seconds into it. I'm like, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. Because we're, we're in this little cart, and I realize that there, there's no railing on the side of it. It's just the side of the cart and death. And I'm like, this is not cool. And we get to the top, and it, like, jerks to the left. And I'm like, yeah, I should have stayed on the ground. I should have let her go by herself. But I'm like, okay, I'll make it. And, like, the whole time, I'm just saying, Jesus, just help me. If you get me out of this, I'll join the monastery. I'll do whatever you need me to do. Just help me through this. So we're going on these rides, and they're fun, and I'm trying to keep the vomit down. And, and we come around the corner, and, like, reaching into the heavens... There's this big green twisted metal roller coaster with like corkscrews and circles. And, and she looks at it and she's like, <gasps> Daddy, can we go on that one? And immediately I'm like, no, we can't. But then I think, how is this going to look? I, I'm going to reach down to my nine-year-old daughter and be like, no, we can't go on that one because Daddy's too scared. So I thought, suck it up, just go. So we get in line, and the line's like four hours long. And the whole time, she's just like so excited. She's like, Daddy, 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 this is going to be so awesome. And I'm like, yes, it is. Daddy, 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 this is going to be, oh, we're moving. We're moving closer. This is going to be so awesome. And so we finally get to the front of the line, and we get buckled in, and I'm checking the thing, making sure that I'm not going to die on this. It's, it's, it's kind of loose. Can you make it tighter? I'd like to not breathe while I'm on the thing. Just make it that tight. Pretty please. So we get in, and the thing starts to move. And the, this ride starts by pulling you back up this slope. So you're literally, like, looking straight down at the ground, and then it shoots you out at about 400 miles an hour. And you're doing corkscrews and upside down, and then you get to the end, and you think it's over, and then you do it backwards. And I'm just, like, I'm, I'm watching other people do it. I'm, I swear, like, I've heard people scream that they're having kidney failure on this thing. And I'm not looking forward to it. So finally, we get in, and they start pulling us back. And everything changed about right here. 
All of a sudden, my daughter's enthusiasm went from excited to panic. And she starts screaming, Daddy, I want to get off. Daddy, I want to get off. Daddy, I want to get off. Daddy, please, can we get off? Please, can we get off? And my experience changed, too, because I went from panic to how can I not laugh in her face right now? (laughs) And we're literally sitting suspended 100 feet above the earth looking straight down, and she's screaming. Daddy, please, can we get off? Please, can we? I don't want to do this anymore. Please, can we get off? Please, can we get off? And I'd be like, you know what, baby? If I could stop the world for you to make that happen, I would do anything for you. Unfortunately, I'm not at the control booth. So they let us go, and she didn't breathe the whole minute and a half we're on this thing. She was screaming the whole time. Screaming. And we get to the end, and just when you think it's over, they send us backwards, and she's screaming even louder. And I'm laughing, and I'm like, and trying not to die at the same time. But I'm laughing, and we get to the end, and I'm going to tell you this. If you have young children, you will never experience shame like this. When other parents see you bringing your nine-year-old off this ride and she's doing nothing but crying. And I'm walking by these other parents and they're like looking at me like, how dare you bring that innocent child on that ride? I'm like, it was all her. It was all her. So we find my wife and uh, her brother and she's just, tears are running down her face. She has like snot all over the place. We find my wife and I'm standing behind her with this big grin on my face. And she's like, how was it? (laughs) It was horrible. And she's crying. And she said, she effectively said, my whole life flashed before my eyes. And I thought, all nine minutes of it. Like for me, I'd be standing here for a few months, like counting back all of my life. But for her, her whole life flashed before her eyes. And you know, it's funny because we use that expression in some very interesting ways when we're scared out of our minds, when it seems like we're kind of getting to the point where our life is going to phase out, we have these experiences. But as we come to Luke 8, I believe that this is exactly what the perspective is that Luke wants us to catch. Because he's painting the picture of what the life of discipleship looks like from beginning to end. His whole, the whole life of discipleship is on display here. And he breaks it down for us in, in three acts. The first act is from, life, or from death to life. And we can pick it up in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilderness. You know, it's pretty interesting to me how this story sort of unpacks in the Gospel of Luke. Pastor Bobby took us through this, this story in Matthew last week where Jesus was on the, the water with the disciples. And, and it's fascinating to me because in the ancient world, the, the water was this picture of chaos. It was a picture of disorder. It was, it was a picture that, of, of a place that's just far from God. And you can kind of imagine how they would kind of arrive at this perspective, right? I often think about what were the, the first seafaring people about? 
when they figured out, wow, that ocean looks like a cool place to take a trip on. And they, they, they went out, they made a boat, and they finally figured out how to float a boat. And they're out on the ocean, and all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, these storms would just sweep over them. Or the, or the first time they realized that there was things in the ocean they could eat. I mean, I, I would feel like the ocean was pretty far away from God if I was fishing, and I pulled out this thing that had like 16 legs and big teeth and wanted to eat me. I would probably think that this is a place that's far from God. And it's fascinating to me that he, Jesus goes from being out on the storm, on the sea, and Luke says he steps out onto dry land. And it's easy to think that these are just sort of some of the details, like, well, obviously, if he's going from sea to land, he's going to step out on the dry land. But I also think that the, the picture is much more profound than that. And I really believe that what Luke is trying to do is echo Genesis 1.9. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. You see, the picture that Luke wants you to catch is that this is your life before Christ. They, they, here, Christ comes into your situation, and just like Genesis 1, he's manipulating these forces of chaos and disorder. He's manipulating these things that want to keep you far from God, and he's stepping onto your dry land. Just like in Genesis 1, God pulls all the water together in one place. And from the water emerges this dry land. And what is this dry land? It's the place where he's going to create a garden for Adam and Eve to live in. It's a place that he's going to promise to the descendants of Abraham. It's a place that he's going to call his children out of Egypt to go and habitate. See, the, the image that Luke wants you to catch is that before Christ, you're just sort of lost in, a, in, the, in the pool of chaos, far from God. And here comes Christ, and he steps into your situation, and he turns the chaos into a place of blessing. He takes your life, and he wants to bring rest and relationship and, and be in close proximity to himself. And whatever your situation was before you met Christ, it's so completely different from how it is now. Whatever it was that you're experiencing before Christ, is, is so completely different from what you're experiencing now as his new creation. And Luke wants you to catch that the, the steps of discipleship first happen when you understand where you came from. The first point this morning, never forget where you came from. How often do you look back, do you take the time to look back to all the things that Christ has brought you through, where he found you, and you know, it doesn't have to be fantastic. You know, I, I came to, to meet Christ as my Savior when I was six years old. I was at the First Baptist Church in South Portland, Maine. If you don't know where that is, it doesn't matter. Nobody knows where that is. I was at the First Baptist Church in South Portland, Maine, and I was in this little room, and, and this, this gentleman named Gene Hart led me to the Lord in a little Sunday school room. And I realized something today is that I'm kind of shocked that Paramount has never knocked on my door and said, hey, your conversion story is fabulous. We'd love to turn it into a, a big-budget action thriller. It's not going to happen. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you have gang history in your past. It doesn't matter if you have drug history in your past. It doesn't matter if you've come from broken relationships, and those are the things that brought you into relationship with Christ. Because the reality is no matter where you came from, you're here. 
in where no matter where you came from, those moments God stepped into the dry land of your circumstances and made your life a place of rest and blessing. And Luke wants you to catch this, that if if you're going to start out as a follower of Christ, if you're going to move from a place where I believe that Jesus died for my sins to now I'm going to start modeling my life after his, it starts with understanding where you came from. This is going to be important as we move through the story, but never forget where you came from. This introduces us to the second act of the story, and Luke shows us how we've gone from death to life, and now he's going to take us from life to life. And the second, the second principle, the second point this morning is that dis- discipleship doesn't happen by force. And let's pick up in verse 30. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, and the demons came out from the man and entered the pigs. The herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. It's kind of hard to, to watch loved ones suffer, isn't it? Especially when you feel like you have the answer. I, I remember that uh, when I was eight or nine, we were having some plumbing problems with the house, and it was, it was a city issue. The, the pipes that ran from the road to, to our house had, had kind of corrupted and fallen apart. So my dad called the city, and they sent out a crew. And my dad was one of these like, old school guys that believes that he can do anything better than you. Right? So he would always give us jobs to do, and then like, he couldn't sit still, so he would come out and be like, no, no, you're not doing it right. Let me show you how to do it. Well, you would be surprised because he had the same attitude with the civil engineers that came out from the city. And they, they came out, and they dug this 10-foot trench in the front of our yard. And every day after work, he would come home, and he would stand over the, the trench, and he would examine their work. And, and I can just imagine what was going through his mind. I wouldn't have done it like that. Stupid city people. What were they thinking? One night he's out there after work and he falls in the trench. And we're all inside. My mom's making dinner. I'm playing on my Atari 2600. You're welcome. My brother's... (laughs) Never mind. I won't even get into that. But we had no idea that my dad was laying in the bottom of the trench. And, And he's laying down. He's too stubborn to call and ask for help. So he claws his way out of the trench, and he comes inside, and my mom sees him, and she's like, what's wrong with you? He's like, nothing. Nothing, I'm fine. And we sit down for dinner, and he's just literally, he can't move his arm, and we're having dinner, he's eating with one hand, like trying to cut his steak using his chin. My mom's like, what is wrong with you? And he's like, nothing, I'm fine. And he sort of got betrayed by this huge bruise that started to develop on his arm. And she's like, what is going on? What happened? He's like, ah, you know, I was out fixing what they did wrong, and I fell in the trench. And she's like, you what? You have to go to the hospital right now. And he's like, nope. Because if there's another thing about my dad is that he refused to go get help. Doctors, whatever, refused. So he gets up the next morning, he goes to work, he has a very physical manual labor job, 
and he's trying to do it with one hand. And finally, his, his foreman was like, what are you doing? Go to the doctor. So they take him to the emergency room. He had broken his arm in two places. That's my dad, which is why I don't like to go to the doctor either. So I blame him for that, honey. It's my dad's fault. He had broken his arm in two places. And it didn't matter how much my mom tried to coax him to getting the help he needed. He wouldn't go. He had to figure it out for himself. And the thing about discipleship is that no one's going to force you to develop your relationship with Christ. You have to get to that place and do it on your own. And it's amazing to me the, the language and the characters that Luke uses in this story. Jesus asked the demon, what's your name? And he says, my name is Legion. And Luke offers this commentary that his name is Legion because there are many demons. But for Jesus' audience, if you said Legion, it would send shockwaves through them. See, it wasn't just that this demon is saying, there's a lot of us in here, we're having a party. The, the fact that he calls himself Legion is borrowing from Roman culture. Because that's how Rome built their empire. They would send out legions of, of army members, army guys. I don't follow army, you can probably get that. Let me start over. They would send out legions of their army and take over places. And, and the image that, that Luke is, is expressing is that this is what is holding you back. We're not, Jesus isn't going to build his kingdom like the Romans did. Jesus isn't going to build his kingdom by force. He's going to do it by inviting people to come in, to be saved and redeemed, and then he's going to go and send them out with the mission of love. If you want to take your discipleship to the next level, it can't happen by force. No one can force you to do it. No one can force you to learn what it means to be more like Christ, to live more like God would have you live. It's a choice that you need to come to on your own. And the third point this morning is that discipleship doesn't happen by obeying rules either. You know, I really believe that American Christianity sort of developed in a way that's created a lot of damage for us. I grew up in a, in a very conservative, almost fundamentalist church. And we used to have this saying that I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't dance or chew, and I don't go with girls that do. And it sort of seems sort of funny and even archaic to me now. But so many of us and so many churches in this country define our Christianity, define our relationship with God by a set of rules that we need to follow. It's, it's do this, don't do that. It's do this, don't do that. Every day you need to pray, you need to read your Bible. We have all, a list of all of these things that we believe will bring us closer to God. But so often those are the things that we actually substitute having a relationship for God with. It's a list of things. I had a pastor one time. I had just graduated from Bible college, and I believed that, like, I was the next John Calvin. And so I was sitting in church all skeptical one day, and he said this. He was talking about our freedom in Christ. And he said, you know, there's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't tell me you can't do. So I can't tell you as a Christian that you shouldn't drink because there's no Bible verse that says thou shalt not drink. And I can't tell you as a Christian that you shouldn't smoke. Because there's no Bible verse that says, thou shalt not smoke. And then he said this, but I wish that there were. Because it would just make things a lot easier. And I thought, how backwards. How backwards that Christ has given us this freedom. Not to do whatever we want. 
not to just go out and sin, but Christ has given this freedom from the law. That we enter in a relationship with Jesus, and now we don't define ourselves, we don't define our relationship by the list of things that we keep. There's no grocery list of, oh gosh, I really blew it today. I did 7, 8, and 12. God's never going to love me anymore. And the language that Luke uses is crazy to me. Because if you remember back, his Jewish audience would have heard this and thought, wow, that's crazy. The, the Jewish people define themselves by their observance of the law. And right at the top of the list were what? The food laws, right? There was a list of things that you can't eat because they're not clean. And right at the top of the list, pork chops. Can't have pork chops and be a good J- Jewish person. And how many times do we have that same attitude? And watch what Jesus does. There's a herd of pigs grazing on the hillside. And the the word that the ESV translates hillside is probably better translated mountain. And in the Bible, mountain is always a place where God comes to reveal himself to his people. And you can think back to Exodus 20, right? God gives Moses the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. And Mount Zion is such a huge, huge part of the Old Testament story. God shows up on a mountain to reveal the laws that his people are to abide by. First and foremost, don't eat pork chops. And so what does Jesus do? The demons beg, don't send us back into the lake that you just calmed. Send us into the representation of the things that your people are expected to abide by. So Jesus obliges in the shadow of the mountain where he reveals himself, and then all of those things are cast into the abyss. And the the thing that Luke wants you to catch by that is that a discipleship relationship isn't list-keeping. It's not obeying commandments. It's not following rules. Jesus didn't come to, to ask for conformity to a code. He came to transform your life. And the transformation will lead to changed lives, changed living. But when we think about discipleship, I think so often we get up in the morning and we think, okay, I, didn't, I read my Bible, check that off. Okay, I haven't prayed yet today, but I'll, I'll squeeze that in before bed, check. I didn't lust after my neighbor, so I'm good there. And it's this constant list of things that we're trying to do to please God. And Luke is saying that that's not discipleship. Discipleship doesn't happen just by obeying rules. So which obviously begs the question, well, how does discipleship happen then? And we find the answer in verse 35. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demon had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I don't know if you catch this, but it's not incidental that this man is said to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. Because it's just not, you know, I think we think, well, they didn't have Lazy Boy. They couldn't go into Z Gallery and pick out a new couch, so the floor is where they sat. But what Luke is saying is that this is the posture of learning. When you sat at at a wise man's feet to learn from him, I answered the question already. When you would learn from a wise man, you would sit at his feet and learn. So what Luke is describing is the posture of learning. And so often when we think about discipleship as learning, we think, okay, well, I just need to read the right books, watch the right DVD series, you know, maybe study a little Greek here and there, right? But but that's not what Jesus is saying. 
We can't confuse information gathering with the kind of learning that Jesus is demonstrating here. Because if you, if you follow Jesus through the gospel, what does he do? He gathers a group of, of learners around him, a community of, of other learners, and he just doesn't stand at the front of a classroom and say, okay, so here's the order of salvation. First, the Holy Spirit will regenerate you so that you can believe. He doesn't stand at the front of the classroom and, and unfold the chart of the end times. He lives amongst his learners. And he shows them how to study Scripture to, to find Christ in it. And he, he shows them how to pray. And he doesn't just tell them to love people. He tells them to love them and shows them how to do it. Shows them what that looks like. See, so often we, we confuse being a disciple with doing a list or just reading a book. And discipleship is so much more than that. Sitting at the feet of Jesus means coming into community with other learners and following Jesus around and seeing all of the things that he wants us to see. Too often I'm afraid we've just reduced discipleship to formulas and rules when Jesus invites us into it being so much bigger than that. So we've seen kind of what discipleship isn't. We've seen what a disciple is. And in the very end of this passage, we're going to see what discipleship does. And we're going to start in verse 36. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had, had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man with whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see, being a disciple doesn't end with you. Jesus didn't come to create, you know, six million little discipleship islands so that we could all just kind of learn and, and have our little relationship with God. But he does it in community with our little other learners so that he can send us out to bring other people with us. See, the, the fifth point this morning is that we, are, we be saved so we can be sent. We be saved so we can be sent. See, the story of this guy is crazy to me. He has demons, and it, it fills the people with fear. The, the, and in fact, the people say, you know what? We, you, we can't have you here anymore. You're too much of a liability. So, so they, they bound him up, and he would break the chain, so now they're like, nope, you need to go live amongst the dead. Go live in the graveyard. We can't have you anymore. And, and here Jesus finds this guy. He heals him. He restores him. He has time to teach him how to live a life pleasing to God. And then what does he do? Go right back from where you came from. All of those people that rejected you, all of those people that were afraid of you, all of those people that wanted nothing to do with you, go to them. Go to your home and tell them what God has done for you. And see what he does. He, he takes it a step further. He doesn't go to his home. He goes to the city. And Mark tells us that the, the, this guy lived in the, a place called the Decapolis. And it's a fancy word for ten cities. It's like it's this place that's the heart of Roman culture. Everything that's bad about Rome, you would find it there. And these people kicked this guy out so that he could go back now and bring more people with him. 
Hey, you remember me? I was the crazy naked guy that was running around screaming like a banshee. Look what Jesus did to me. He stepped off the crazy sea and into my dry land. He brought blessing and rest into my life. This is what he did for me. Guess what? He wants to do it for you too. We be saved to be sent. And you know, so often I think that we look at life in terms of its linear movement from point A to point B. Right? We, we say, hey, I need to buy a car. Do you know anybody that's selling a car? Well, well, what do you want? I just want anything that gets me from point A to point B. When we talk about our life, we start at the very beginning. Well, I was born on May 24th, 1973, Waterville, Maine. A few years ago, I ended up in California, and we, we end at the point that we're it's right here. We move from point A from point to point B. And I'm so afraid so often that that's how we frame our life of discipleship as well. That, that we look back to when Christ saved us and when Christ redeemed us. And that's our starting point. And, and we track all of the progress that we've made. To, we get to the point that we're now ready to go back and we're ready to be on mission for Christ. And then we think, well, now I've arrived. My work here is finished. I can just ri- retire and ride it out into the sunset. But that's not the picture that Luke is trying to communicate because Luke doesn't think his generation, his culture, they don't think from point A to point B. They think cyclically. They think in terms of the cycle. And what Luke wants you to catch here is that this is the cycle of discipleship because guess what's going to happen the first time you step out on mission for Christ? You might fall on your face. And you know what Luke says? That's okay. Because when you find yourself in those moments, those are the moments that Christ steps back onto your dry land. He invites you to sit at his feet, and then he sends you back out. You're going to go on mission, and people are going to laugh at you. And they're going to tell you, you know what? I don't need Jesus. And it's going to break your heart. And Luke says, that's okay. Because in that moment, Jesus is going to step off of the stormy sea and into the dry land of your life and bring blessing and bring rest and create you fresh and invite you to sit at his feet again so that you can go back out. And you're going to get out there and you're going to find that life is just going to fall apart. You're going to go to the doctor one day. You're going to have a job that's no longer yours a spouse that's no longer yours, and you're going to think, I don't understand what's going on. And Luke says, that's okay. Because in those moments, Jesus is going to step fresh onto your dry land. He's going to bring you blessing. He's going to bring you rest. He's going to invite you to sit back at his feet so that he can pick you up, make you new again, and send you back out. life of discipleship isn't a one-and-done thing. We don't just sit and learn. We don't go tell someone about Jesus and be done. Luke wants you to understand that no matter what you're going through, no matter what failures you find, no matter what success you have, no matter what life throws at you to break you, Jesus calmed that storm. And now he's going to step fresh into your dry land and make it a place of rest and blessing. This morning, my question to you is what are you doing this morning to become a disciple of Christ? 
What are the things that you do when you wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to to deepen my walk with Jesus this morning? Do do you open the nightstand drawer and take out your checklist of all of the things that a good Christian does, thinking that this is what's going to draw me closer to God? Are you you waiting for someone to take you by the hand and say, look, enough. You've been a believer for far too long. Let's take it to the next step because no one's going to do that for you. Discipleship has to become more than formulas and books. It has to be living in community with other believers and finding ourselves at the feet of Jesus to learn what it means to live like God, to be like God to love like Christ and then to go out and bring someone else with you are you planning to get plugged into a regroup in the fall are you going to to fear sisterhood on Wednesday night or or signing up for the first steps discipleship class all of these things are inroads to, to plugging into a community of people on the same journey as us sitting at the feet of Christ and learning what it means to be Christ followers on mission for him. You know, if I would encourage you, if, if your life of discipleship has not ever flashed before your eyes, take some time this week and invite God in and ask him to bring you along for this amazing journey. Let's pray.